Hey guys, welcome back to Tennis 360, the podcast where we talk about all things tennis. My name is Anthony Hirsch. And I'm Eliza Westgate. And uh, welcome to the 2024 tennis season. We've got a lot to talk about already. We've got United Cup, we've got Hong Kong, Brisbane, Nadal made a comeback. On the women's side, Naomi Osaka made a comeback. Lots of comebacks, lots of stuff to get into already. It's been a really, really big week. Uh, well, first of all, how are you adjusting to the new season of 20, 2024? <laughs> Not yeah, I feel like that was the shortest off-season yeah. ever. <laughs> yeah. I know we haven't done a pod in a little over a month, but um, yeah, it feels like with all the exhibition tournaments and things going on, there was maybe two weeks of quiet. Um, so I feel bad for the players, man. I, I would need more of a rest than that. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a funny tweet on Twitter. I can't remember who said it, but somebody said 2023 off-season, rest in peace 2023 off-season, December 2023 to December 2023. It was less yeah. than a month's time. Next-gen finals was like mid-December. It's like, the the Crazy. funny thing is a lot of players were playing like exhibitions anyway. Like high, like pretty yeah. intense high level exhibitions. We had the Alcaraz Djokovic exhibition in Saudi Arabia. Um mm. so that was kind of interesting. But anyway, definitely uh yeah. definitely too short of an off season for my liking. I think it could be a bit longer, but it's uh something yeah, I mean, adjusted to now. If your off season is that short, you know, if you're looking at two, three weeks as an off season, it makes sense that you're gonna play some competitive exhibitions in that period because you can't really afford to take more than a couple of days off in that if you wanna, you know, come into the Australian Open at your top level, you can't you can't spend those two, three weeks sitting on the couch, that's for yeah. sure. So um that's really cool. not much opportunity to get rest even even with the tour not having as many tournaments going on. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. I, I, I never really thought about it. You have to like really keep up that intensity for better or for worse, because yeah. like the thing about the off season that'd be good is, well, number one, the obvious thing is rest. Number two is the fact that you could kind of improve different parts of your game and your physicality and just get better in lots of ways, improving just about it every way possible. So that's, that's not so good, but anyway, it is what it is. Uh, yeah. It was a crazy right. first week though. We had, uh, first, we can talk about United Cup. Team Germany got the win versus Poland. Uh, it was a really crazy final. It was one of the – we've only had two United Cups, but I have a feeling this is probably going to stay one of the crazier ones that we've had because Germany saves two championship points. Zverev, in the second-to-last match of the uh, of the tie, saves two match points versus her catch, one on his serve, the other with an amazing passing shot. Uh did you get to watch it? Did you think I was more her catch or more Zverev that kind of that kind of sh- uh, put that tie over to Germany? Yes, I stayed up late on Saturday night LA time to to watch that tie, and yeah, Zverev. I think he got to bed at like five a.m. the night before uh, or the day of that match, so he was really yeah. running on fumes. And I think what's impressed me about this performance from him was really kind of the grit, determination, like willingness to stick with it, kind of try some different strategies. I think in the first set, he came to the net a lot unsuccessfully. And in the second set was more willing to hang at the baseline. I I think as much as Zverev was willing to, you know, do the hard yards and kind of get, get go the distance, I also thought Hercatch really squandered some some big opportunities that that match point on his serve i felt like he didn't really go for it he got his first serve in but i don't think it was as big as first serve i thought his approach shot was a little bit tentative which kind of left the door open still and um 
I think his the quality of his first serve kind of really dropped in the second and third set. And um, I think that's kind of what, what left the door open for Zverev to ultimately get the win. And I also thought there was some kind of negative body language coming from her catch that just didn't help his ability to refocus and reset in this in the third set. And then once we got to the mixed doubles, I think he kind of continued that like negative defeatist energy a little bit. Um, and the, the yeah. quality of the serving continued to kind of be a little bit below what I would expect from him. And um, I think he would probably be disappointed with that serving performance in general outside of that first set where, where it was looking good. Um, and I think it was a nice advertisement for doubles, in particular mixed doubles. The fact that the tie did come down to a mixed doubles match tiebreak, that's pretty fun. And to see yeah. it being played by, you know, two top players from Poland's team, a world number one, a top 10 player, another top 10 player on Germany's team, and then a double specialist. And at the end of the day, the double specialist of Laura Siegmund from Germany, I think was really the deciding factor in that tie. I thought she played really strategic, really smart doubles. And her movement at the end of the day, I think is really what helped the team win um, against such a good hitter in Sviantec. And, and such a good server in her catch. I mean, you, you know, you don't think of Siegmund as a great server, but in that match tiebreak, she won all of her serving points because she's so clever. Um, she's so positionally aware. And so I thought that that, um, that was a lot of fun, that that's what it came down to. I think that, you know, the fans who were there probably really enjoyed that, that it wasn't over after the second uh, tie, singles tie. Um, and overall, a really just gritty performance from the Giants. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think the tournament, for better or worse, kind of ended up being a little bit of a more of a mixed doubles tournament because, like, I think 12 of the first 15 ties went to mixed doubles. Yeah. But like you said, I felt like it was a bit of a celebration of doubles. I, I like to see that nowadays. And also, the good thing about this event is it makes a lot of singles players play doubles, kind of like the Davis yeah. Cup. And that's yeah. a good thing to bring out a lot of kind of net play and prove that from players because we know that's lacking a lot nowadays with a lot of the baseline mm -hmm. play. Um, yeah, her catch was visibly nervous in my opinion during the, yeah. during the match. And like you said, his serve, serve and confidence is kind of a cycle that kind of, I don't know, eats itself. Like, uh, like if you're not serving well, you lose confidence. If you lose confidence, you're not serving well. And then it becomes a bit of yeah. a vicious cycle. That's kind of what happened with her catch. I think on the match point, he actually did miss his first serve by like, it was by, by like a bit, but then mm -hmm. it was actually the match point on Zverev's serve that he came in and then, mm -hmm. uh, and then his backhand for, firstly, I felt like he had a backhand winner. He played very tentative, yeah. let Zverev yeah. back in and then Zverev just completely missed the forehand. And I felt like Zverev, he fought well throughout the event. I mean, it's crazy to, mm -hmm. to go to sleep at 5 a.m. and then win two doubles matches. We don't even usually see him as a doubles player. In fact, early in his career, it was his brother, Misha Zverev, who we saw as the volleyer. He was never a good, really good volleyer. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he, he's he been volleying better even last season. That's some improvements that I saw. So 15-13, uh, I think, in the tie. Uh, yeah. And, yeah, it was, uh, it was an impressive display. Um, I think and, it's also worth noting that Team Germany got to the final not by winning their qualifying group. They were kind of like the lucky losers in the situation where they they had the best like runners-up performance out of their pool. And that's how they got into the quarters. It's the same story with Team USA who ended up winning last year. 
Um, so I thought that that was an interesting kind of tidbit there as well, because right. really early on, I think if we had looked at the draw, you know, at least I, I really thought Poland was the favorites to win the tie with, with Harkach and Sriantec. And they certainly were kind of blistering through everybody up until this final point. Yeah. Well, either either yeah. Poland or Australia, right? Because they seem yeah. like the two ones that had a really, really good doubles team, if nothing else. Right. Yeah. I mean, her but I don't the... think Tom Lajanovic, no offense to her, was like, you know, the, to me, their setup of Tom Lajanovic and Dimonor was not as like, holy cow, that's a power team over Sriantec and her catch. Yeah, well, yeah, and but the the thing that I would say those in uh, Australia's doubles team were both absolute double specialists of Storm yeah, Hunter and Matthew Ebden, and they true. played I think nearly every tie. So yeah. that was like the thing was if this is a mixed doubles event, look for Australia because they basically have Brian and Brian on their team playing the mix, yeah. even if they don't have the singles players. So yeah. I was like, they might be the ones to watch for, honestly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. yeah, Germany, Zverev, and maybe even just as impressive as the fashion beats them with Sigmund in the night before. So really impressive yeah. display from, yeah. uh, from team Germany. And I really think they were the underdogs. I don't think yeah. people came in expecting them to win. And uh, to be honest, I'm happy that this event was as like, it was as publicized and kind of talked about as it was, because I think it's a, mm -hmm. it's probably my favorite version of the events that they've had to start out the season personally, because yeah. I really like the Hopman cup back in the day, but it probably mm -hmm. makes more sense to have, uh, have a WTA ATP event that actually counts for something counts for points at the start. Um, yeah. really gets a match play in for an event that costs already 500 points before the uh, Australian Open playing some of the best players in the world, which is really great. Uh, even Djokovic yeah. played, which we'll get, we can get to that as well. Um, and kind of a big upset that happened with Novak. Um, but uh, I think it's a really good version of the event. I always wanted them to have an ATBWTA mixed event, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And I was happy yeah. that they did it. But I thought that once they did it, it might just be an ATBWTA sanctioned event like Labor Cup. I'm glad mm -hmm. that actually for points and counts for something at the end of the day. So um yeah, i was happy I with that and uh and i don't know let's i hope, think let's hope it stays like yeah, that's the other it. thing right because next year the schedule is looking different and it sounds like they might try and squeeze in a masters in saudi in january before the ao so some question marks we're only the second edition into the united cup and already some question marks as to whether that will still exist in the same way that it has been over the last couple of years um next yeah. year so i really enjoyed it as well and you know it was over 70 matches across the last um 10 days or so that's a lot of tennis a lot of opportunities for you know folks to get match time and i think it's also kind of a fun way for tennis fans to maybe follow you know more closely some of their favorite players in a slightly different format and get behind their country a little bit some different storylines and what we were used to seeing um in in a slam event, you know, I thought uh, the story of, I think it was Norway's uh, female player, you know, someone that was yeah. usually totally on the challenger side of the WTA and had one of the best matches yeah, against good. Garcia that, yeah, that was super yeah, impressive, good. a lot of fun to watch. So I think United Cup also gives an opportunity to some of those players, first of all, from a money making perspective and a point making perspective to kind of have yeah. a go and, and to see some new names and faces from, you know, smaller countries who we might not know. And that's that's always fun for tennis fans to see yeah. new storylines. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we had, yeah, Malene Helgo, who who pushed both Caroline Garcia and Donna Vekic, both top 20, top 25 players yeah, in three sets. Exactly. 
Caroline Garcia it was an absolute epic. She won the second set tiebreaker. She shouldn't have won. And then third set tiebreaker. It was really good. I agree. Uh, it also shows some young players that might not be as yeah. high ranked at the moment. Like 19-year-old Sacleritis showed up when Sitzfoss come play and pushed Jari to an epic, which yeah. everybody was like, who is this guy? But he's he's promising. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I think it's good all around. And, um yeah, I'm excited for it to uh, for it to kind of stay for a bit. That's kind of that's kind of my hope for it. And um, yeah, it was uh, it was exciting. It was exciting to watch. There was a lot of great matches throughout the event. Uh, Tom Landovich versus Kerber was one of those with two yeah. comeback players. Um, in fact, we had a lot of players coming back this week on the ATP and the WTA side. Uh, Amarada Kanu, uh, another young player, Amanda Nisimova. We had Naomi Osaka back. Nadal, obviously, uh, uh, Naomi Osaka, Chilich, and then also Angelique Kerber as well. So, um, and uh, some a couple other names to name as well. But those were yeah. some players who have come back this week. So that's been really good fun to watch. And it was a it was a match between two comeback players. That was a, it was it was just an absolute epic match between Kerber and Tom Lanovich. But it was a really strange match, and they broke. <laughs> yeah, it was. They had 15 breaks throughout the match from either player. Uh, uh, and they weren't really serving bad, but neither player has the best serve, and they're both elite kind of returners and defenders. Um, I have some stats. Like, Kerber was making 79% of first serves in, which is outrageous, to be honest. Tom Lanovich was making 71% of first serves in, uh, but they won uh, 29 and 38% of their second serves throughout the match, and uh, they were in the 50s in terms of first serve per, uh, points won. Uh, throughout the match so their first serves just weren't there it was a lot of breaks break central uh but it made it a lot of fun uh the third set was just a marathon with some really outrageous rallies and defending from both so it was really cool to see both players have good fighting spirit and that should help them in their comebacks on the tour overall as well uh but then the big one as well which was demonor upsetting Djokovic in straight set six four six four Djokovic had won 43 consecutive matches in Australia since 2018, starting from 2019. Uh, that's his second biggest uh, uh, consecutive streak in a country ever. Uh, his last one was in China, where he won 28 in a row, and then he lost to Federer, I believe, 6-4, 6-4 in Shanghai. That was mm-hmm. 10 years ago in 2014. Uh, 43 uh, matches in a row, and now he loses to Alex Dimonor, 6-4, 6-4 in straight sets. He has lost a set in nine of his last 14 matches in three of his last 10, two against Sinner last year. So he's a lot of players are being a bit more competitive with Djokovic, I feel like at the moment, mm-hmm. especially towards the end of last year, although mm-hmm. it was coming off a long season, but still mm-hmm. really good playing. Alex Dimonor playing the best tennis he's ever played. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, it was so different from the kind of dismantlement that Djokovic had against Dimonor at the Australian Open last year where he, where he won in straight sets. And Dimonor... Mm-hmm. In that match, Demonor was just trying to play offense, uh, like on the offense, and he had absolutely no shot of just doing that when Djokovic was playing as aggressive and ruthless as he was last year. But I felt like it was different this year to me was that Demonor was actually willing to defend more, and then his forehand, when he was able to get opportunities and step in, his forehand was hitting as big as ever. His defense was actually being really effective and getting a lot of good depth on it. And that really allowed him, when he was able to step in, turn defense to offense, his forehand was hitting really big. So it was it was really good all around from Demonor. Uh, and uh, that was a big match. Uh, what did you think of that upset? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, 
based on the type of player that Diminor is, he's the type of guy that you don't want to face early on in the season. You know, he relies in terms of where his attributes are really on his his fitness, um, which is going to be at its peak post, you know, off season period. Um, and his body's going to be feeling good. I also think he plays, you know, another level when it when it comes to representing Australia or playing in front of the Australian crowd. And you know, he had a he he had a really great season last year and showed promising signs of kind of being willing to add on top of this kind of you know defensive game to find ways for him to be able to win the point. And I think he you know he played and executed that perfectly against Djokovic. So full credit to him. I also think that, um, you know, that there's there's a, a slight question mark over Djokovic's wrist, uh, how that was doing. You know, he presented a couple of um, times in this United Cup where he needed medical timeouts and it looked like, you know, it, it was impacting him, whether that was two or 3% or 10%, we don't really know, but he wasn't at 100% level Djokovic. And I also think with you know someone his level of experience and his age if he's feeling anything right now that um you know might might be impacting his level ahead of the australian open i think he does take a couple percentage points of his effort level off um in order to you know to protect his body and i don't think that he's the type of person that's you know going to take risks at a united cup um, to, to, to try and pull something back. So I don't want to take anything away from Alex because it was an exceptional performance, but I do think one has to have in the back of their mind, you know, kind of what, what was the conditions of Djokovic on the day? What's he got his mind and his eye on and what's the priority for him? And I, I, I would guess that there's a couple percentage points there missing in terms of seeing the full level of Novak Djokovic um, in that match. Yeah, that's true. I just don't want to take anything away from Alex Dimonor because even beating a Djokovic at 80 or 90% is a accomplishment in itself. No, it's impressive. But, and if, yeah. and he also had a good week. You know, he beat uh, Taylor Fritz as well. He moves into the top 10 for the first time in his career. There's, there's nothing to say that, you know, Alex didn't perform at, you know, the highest level possible and that he brought his best tennis and he totally deserved to win that match. I just think when we're talking about Novak Djokovic ahead of his, you know, most successful slam, um, if if he's got anything on his mind, I I think as a player, one knows you know how to protect things a little bit um, to to make sure that he's not making anything worse for himself than than it's than it currently is. Um, so I just always yeah. think it's worth thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, well, he also played a very impressive match against Zverev because uh, well, he had an impressive week. Uh, quite a strange stat about Dimonor's week this week. He beat Zverev, Fritz, and Djokovic in straight sets. Or, sorry, uh, he beat Fritz and Djokovic in straight sets. He lost to Zverev in three... Or he beat Zverev in three sets. So, three wins. His one loss was against Cameron Nori in Cameron <laughs> Nori's first win in about six months. But just shows you that tennis is an unpredictable sport because uh, <laughs> that is not something that I would expect against Cam Nori. But uh, against Zverev, he played a very impressive match. Uh, the key does, stat for yeah. me of the match was he won 24 out of 35 second serve points. He won 69% of first serve and second uh, second serve points. Uh, he was actually down a set and a break point at 2-2, and he played almost a miracle kind of volley backhand that hit right in front of the net. 
So uh, that was an absolute key moment for Demon. I know that Australia didn't win the tie anyway, but for Demon or to crack the top 10, because we don't know. We don't know how long he'll stay in the top 10. It was great to see that and a fantastic win over Zverev, who only managed to break Demon or once. Demon or managed to break Zverev twice. So I thought that was an impressive uh, kind of victory for uh, for the Australian. Who's been in the who's had been the top fifteen about three years ago, but finally breaks the top ten. And it's one of these guys who are like, yeah, he deserves it. He uh, he always had the work ethic, he always had the skills, he always had the speed, the fight, but he's really added a lot more into his game and made it really effective against the top players. And uh, pretty crazy to beat Nadal at United Cup last year and then Djokovic at United Cup this year. Even though, as you mentioned, the circumstances are a little bit different, and well, we hope that Djokovic's wrist is okay going to Australia. Last year, he had some physical concerns as well coming into Australia, which we remember mm-hmm. well. So yeah. you can't count out Novak. He'll, I think he's still yeah. the favorite, honestly, for the event. We've got to wait and see how he looks on the practice court, uh, what his draw is like. But honestly, most important thing, how's, how's he's hanging that forehand, how his wrist is looking. So we'll see uh, We'll see how that kind of, that kind of keeps going. Um, but also, we had some other tournaments going on in Australia as well. We had Brisbane and Auckland. Uh, Brisbane was a WTA ATP combined event that I think is one of the craziest ATP WTA combined 250 events I've ever seen because we had Rabakna and Sabalinka in the event who ended up playing the final. We had Naomi Osaka in there. She came back. We had um, we had Rafa, uh, Rafa coming back and uh, then just some great players overall, Dimitrov who has been playing at a top 10 level, playing against the top 10 Holger Runa. So this event was, uh, this event was a bit of a, bit of a crazy one for not just the 250, but the first week of the season. But uh, yes, Dimitrov that- got the win. He won his first title since 2017. Uh, I got to watch that final in full, staying up to about 4.30 in the morning here, calling for the channel. And uh, um, it was a great win. Uh, he's hitting the back end so confidently. I think when Dimitrov is confident, he's one of the, most annoying players to play on the tour. What did you think of kind of Grigor's win there? Yeah, super high level performance, you know, continues from a really strong post US Open, especially indoor season last year into into the new year, which I think is kind of one of the hardest things to do is keep that momentum going. And yeah, it seems like he's got a new a new love for it, a new energy for it, is is playing some of his best tennis looks mentally in a in a good spot and you know if if there's ever a time for Dimitrov to have a big year whether that's a first masters title or you know really being a contender at a slam again it's going to be now and um i think he's in a really good spot to just be positive and kind of see an upward trajectory from here there's nothing to me that indicates his tennis isn't on the right level or isn't good enough it certainly is i mean he defended beautifully he moved fantastically he subbed really well a sub plus one combination with the forehand was extremely dangerous and would worry anybody um and yeah i don't i don't think anybody wants to see him on their half of the draw their quarter of the draw coming into the australian open he's in fine form yeah. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree. And Australian Open has been his best major in terms of win percentage. And that was mm-hmm. the closest he's ever gone to a major final. He's never been mm-hmm. in the final of a major, but got to the semifinal. He played against Rafa in five sets. Yeah. He got very close to winning that match as well. Yeah. Uh, that was before Rafa would play Federer in that iconic final, but he got so close to the final there. So it'd be good to see him perform well. 
Uh, he's a dark horse for me. I think he'll be a dark horse for many people because yeah. one of his problems, even last year, even for in 2023 for the first half of last year, I think was um, the, uh, the fact that he wasn't beating a lot of top guys and mentally he was kind of um, struggling against the top guys. And the most obvious example was against Sasha Zverev at the Roland Garros for Anna 16, where he was just hitting error after error, even though Zverev wasn't even testing him that much, but he was just mm -hmm. completely mentally folded up in that match. And it was hard to watch. But last year, beat Tsitsipas in Paris, beat Medvedev in Paris, beat Alcaraz in Shanghai, got to the final of Paris. Now he won a title in Brisbane. He beat Runa in the final in straight sets. And it's the yeah. kind of performances that get you excited about a guy who might go all the way, not go all the way, but uh, are at least contenders for having a big run at a major. And that's something yeah. that you want to look out for. And um, the backhand, it's the backhand. We knew the serve was there. The serve has only gotten better, but it's the backhand. It's the return of serve throughout that match. Dimitrov was in a lot of Runa service games. Almost yeah. every other game he was getting to uh, to break point or to, uh, or at least the 30 all. I mean, he was pushing Runa throughout that first set. In fact, by the time the two set match ended, it was about two and a half hours long. The very yeah. long straight sets match, but he was tested it was so many long games, including a nine deuce game in the second set on the Runa serve. And uh, in the first ge uh, service game that Runa had, he went up love 40 on the Runa serve. So the return of serve is amazing. He's hitting through his shots. The back end is confident. And it's the kind of stuff that you want to see from a guy. Uh, it's been a while since we've seen a, a, uh, a one-handed player outside of Tsitsipas do well out of major. This is a guy that might be able to do that. And he's hitting that one-hander really, really well. It's really exciting. Runa also had a good tournament. He got to his first yeah. outdoor hardcourt final which is a good uh, uh, good result for him. But then also the biggest news, in my opinion, of the tennis world in this first week is the return of Rafael Nadal, who is back in his first event. And by the crazy powers of the uh, tennis gods above, it is Dominic Team who he gets in his first <laughs> round match who qualifies into the event. And you're just like, wow, mm -hmm. that's, that's yeah. crazy. Um, yeah. and, uh, it was technically a one in six chance, but still the fact that we got it is just like, okay, well, there you go. Uh, so, uh, Rafa won two matches. He beat team. He beat Jason Kubler. These are players that are outside of the top 90 in the world at the moment, but still good wins. And the fact that Rafa was looking as it, with the intensity that he had, the aggression that he had hitting the serve very well, the back end was firing too. Uh, really good signs. Uh, and we can get to the third match in a second, but what do you think of kind of Rafa's kind of victories back on the tour uh, or how he looked kind of in his first match against team as well? Yeah, I mean, I remember uh, right at the turn of the year, Bruno had a practice with Nadal and kind of sat in a press conference and was like, uh, that was one of the hardest practices yeah. ever. The guy is back. Um, and, you know, I... I Nadal is such a perfectionist. I am not surprised that he returns at a level that it wows people, impresses people. Um, he obviously was going to do everything he could in that in that year off and time a comeback with a high a high level or high performance that he felt he could trust. And I think it was, you know, so from that perspective, I was not surprised per se i i didn't think that nadal would want to have a sort of like comeback tour where his level is like shockingly low in comparison to what we're seeing from him um in the past so i i, I kind of had that expectation going in that he was he was going to play well 
Um, and he did. And, you know, then then one only has kind of questions to ask over. All right. So he's physically hanging in there. He can play. But what's his match fitness like? You know, what does he um, how is he playing the big points? Uh, you know, is he does he look mentally as sharp as he has been, you know, after not playing matches for a year, which I think for tennis players is always the biggest question when you're looking at people making comebacks. It's never yeah. really like, you know, does this person still have the ability? Of course, with major injuries, there's question marks, but the ability is going to be there. It's a matter of is is that mental toughness there that, you know, playing matches day in, day out, week in, week out for a season puts you in a different you know, level of preparation than if you haven't played competitive matches in a year. So I think that's maybe where we saw some of those, um, yeah, we, we not weaknesses, but just areas of opportunity to improve on as he continues his comeback. And then, unfortunately, um, in that match against, uh, who was it, Jordan Thompson, uh, he had match points on his racket um, and, and couldn't get it done. And then, sadly looked like he kind of picked up a little bit of a muscle tear, micro muscle tear that um, has cut his chances of, of participating in the Australian Open. But I think for Nadal fans, obviously disappointed not to see him in the first slam. But I will be honest, I didn't think he was going to play the Australian Open this year. I don't think that um, being able to come back and play best of five after having maybe one or two best of three tournaments prior was ever really going to be a smart move for him. And I think he's not confirmed if this is really his last year, but most likely. And I think for him, the priority is going to be Roland Garros and the Olympics. And I, I thought if there was even any percentage of question marks or doubt over his ability to play five best of five, that he wasn't um you know gonna risk it and it's it's the smart move and he has the micro tear in his muscle it's gonna take a couple weeks and um yeah hopefully he'll make strategic uh decisions with his calendar um to put himself in an optimal position for the next time yeah yeah i think it's the thing with older players kind of having comebacks right is that well like you said it's kind of the lack of match play and the big points which i think you said uh, which I think is interesting. I think the other thing, though, is that um, when you're up match point and you're 37 years old and you're not sure if the body is going to hold up for that much longer for the set after or for two or three more sets, however long it may be, you're like, I've got to finish this right now. I don't have yeah. time to play around. Like, I don't yeah. know if my body is going to even hold up. In the case of Rafa, it really didn't hold up. He, he got a, He got a micro tear in the third set, which is very unfortunate. So I don't know. It's, it's funny how you play a tennis match. You hope you get to match point. You, you want to do as well as possible. But I'm almost wondering, does Rafa regret having match points? Because that is such a, <laughs> such a heartbreak for Rafa. Uh, at the end of the day, it's a good learning experience, I think, for the rest of the season. Like you said, he's going to want to peak for the clay. I've seen some people say that he's going to go straight to the clay courts, which I kind of very much doubt, to be honest. I think he would want the best match play even going into the clay swing, to be honest, especially since the at the very start of the clay swing, Monte Carlo has been such a successful event for him. It's not like Djokovic, where Monte Carlo has been his least successful Masters event. Like Monte yeah. Carlo, I think, is Rafa's most successful, or at least most successful with, uh, what would it be, Rome, I believe. What, what, one of the, his most successful events, mm -hmm. and uh, one that he won eight consecutive titles there from... Uh, up until 2013. So I think that um, 
I think that Rafa is going to want the best possible match play. And like you said, it's a farewell tour. I think his priority is clay, but I don't think it's not a priority to have as many farewell waves to the crowds at all the events they had throughout a special career at different matches. I think that's a priority for him who really adores tennis and has really enjoyed a really a career that was filled with a lot of struggle, but also with a lot of joyous moments and success at a lot of the different tournaments. Um, so that is something that I would say. My prediction is not that he's going to come back on clay. I think he's going to come back on hard courts. Uh, but the other thing I will say is that he was playing really, 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 really good hard court tennis for his first two matches. Like he didn't have a choice about whose first two opponents were. Um, obviously the three hour and 25 minute third uh, third round match where Thompson really played a very high level, really yeah, yeah. kind of got the best of uh, kind of got the best of Rafa. But I think that in his first two matches, he probably would have beaten a lot of top sixty, top seventy, top fifty guys in my opinion. Obviously, oh, wants yeah. to climb his he wants to climb his level higher. So, but I think he was playing at a really good level, and um, not many people can beat Jason Kubler six two six one. Uh, yeah. Beat any top one hundred guy six two six one. So he was playing strong. His forehand. I, w I also wasn't shocked that he was at a good level. I was more shocked about the intensity that he came out with, like within just the very first point on the court yeah. uh, after a year of not playing matches. But the forehand was never an issue to me. It was also, I wasn't that surprised by his movement. He is one of the best athletes in the world. I thought he would get it back. That was definitely something to watch. For me, it's the fitness over the whole season, right? That's the yeah. thing that I kind of want to, that's something that I want to kind of look for more than anything else. That's what is my biggest watch and so far third match back already injured it's far from ideal but i hope that he is able to play a lot of the more big events coming down the road mm -hmm. and it seems like roland garros is going to be his first tournament back uh he would have liked to play australian open but it's going to be exciting if he is able to play roland garros which we all hope that he uh that he's able to but yeah yeah i think the one thing with with rafa that's been kind of consistent throughout his career is like the guy is always going to give 110%. And it doesn't surprise me that he came flying out of the blocks, like first point, first match. Like he's excited to be out there. He's excited to be competing. And, you know, um, I think in a way, like it's always been his competitiveness, his just outright desire to win, grind, point, like never give up, never say die type of attitude that, what is a reason why so many people and fans love him but has also been you know maybe a contributing factor to to why his career won't have the longevity of somebody like Novak who you know has the same mentality but in terms of Nadal's game like his body was always going to be what defeats him at the end of the day with how he plays his style um it, you know, and, and we talked about it even last year in the Australian Open. It's like, why did you finish that match? Like, why did you play that extra set? You know, how much worse did you make that injury? Um, and we saw it at Wimbledon a few years uh, before that, where it seems like sometimes some decisions he makes, um, unfortunately, you know, put him in a situation where his body can't hold up. And a part of me just wondered, like, he really came out playing full pelt, which obviously he needed to do if he had, you know, real true intentions of playing in Australia. He really needed to go out there and test it, especially in best of three. But I, I was a little like concerned, um, given the aggressiveness of his movement and and kind of how he was playing. I was like, geez, like he, he's all out. Um, and I, I just sort of wondered, like, 
Uh, is there a way for him to play and kind of make a comeback that maybe feels a little more gradual where you've still got something in the tank a little bit? I don't know. You know, maybe that's not right or not, not the right mentality. It certainly doesn't suit him. But I think that's kind of been a thread for him throughout his career where that unfortunately um, his body has let him down because of the intensity and the nature of, in the way that he plays. Yeah. Well, it's a very hard question to answer. And the thing the, the thing is that there's a very good argument against the fact that he went around his, about his career in the wrong way just because he ha- did end up having the most Grand Slam titles of anybody ever by yeah. two ahead of anybody ever at one point in his career yeah. as the second most majors ever. So he obviously had a lot of success throughout his career. It might be just a thing of everybody kind of goes through their own journey and has their own yeah. way that they need to kind of go about things. But yeah. you do, I will say you do bring up an interesting point in that it's, you look at a guy like Carlos Alcaraz, and I hate people just compare Nadal and Alcaraz just out of nauseum just because they're both Spanish, um, although yeah. you can make some comparisons. But this comparison kind of just kind of comes up by itself, which is that they are both players that can struggle at the last part of the season. And I'm not sure mm-hmm. that it's entirely because the last part of the season is indoors, but it's because they both give 120% for most of the Every season, point. and then yeah. they can just run out of gas. And they yeah. will go every point just going 110%. I think Rafa throughout his career has been a little bit better than Alcaraz so far at finding the mm-hmm. right times in a match to peak. So far, mm-hmm. Alcaraz is literally just like every point is like yeah. the is like match point. Like he's down Yeah, it's, gr- it's a grueling way to play tennis. And yeah. it's, it's the major reason why Nadal has had success. It's the major reason why we love him. I mean, it's yeah. a, certainly an attribute I wouldn't want to take away from him. It's just sort of, you know, when, when one thinks about uh, longevity in careers and things like that. It's always something that people have kind of brought up about Nadal is like, uh, yeah, may- maybe sometimes um, you need to pick your moments a little better or you, you make some strategic decisions in terms of, okay, you know, I know you've never pulled out of a match because of an injury or it's happened so few times. Maybe now that you're over 35 years old, give yourself a break and and default or you know uh, <laughs> retire in a match every once yeah. in a while if your body needs to it's it's things like that where i think you know he's the ultimate competitor the ultimate sportsman and has has always played you know giving his 100 percent. that's why he, he gets so much respect i just think um at moments in the later halves of his career i felt like maybe he could have been more selfish and and i think it's just the unfortunate way also of how the australian open is placed in the calendar where he really timed his comeback with such a short lead in where, you know, he wouldn't really have had time. Maybe he would have liked to play like, I don't know, a 250 with less of an intense entry list. And, um, you know, maybe had a couple more of those with some time spaced out in between ahead of, you know, going into a slam, but him knowing that he only had a a few weeks to kind of get ready for it. He was obviously going to go all in from the first match. And um, yeah, it's just unfortunate to see, to see him pick up an injury, but let's see, you know, how he chooses to to deal with it, how he recovers from it and kind of what his scheduling decisions are. Yeah. Uh, Cause I was going to say, I, it's been unfortunate, but I don't want to be fully negative about no, it either. Because like, it could have been a lot worse. He said he, cause it's not like he injured a part of, a part of his, uh, like part of, injured his arm or like injured a part mm-hmm. of like his knee, which would be terrible as well. But uh, he injured the same part of the body that got him out of the tour for a year last year. So he, uh, it's got, um, or near that part, it, but it wasn't the exact same part, which is kind of yeah. 
what was uh, ultimately really relieving at the end of the day that that was kind of what um, was not what got him uh, was not what the injury was because he he said himself that he was worried that it might be the same part of his Mm -hmm. body Um, and uh, overall like you said it's the very start of the season so he'll have a lot of time to come back yeah. Uh, and he said it, overall, he won two matches. He played a pretty good third match, uh, even though he really should have put away both of his first two match points. He had an easy sitting forehand that in over 20 years of his career, I've never seen him miss that single shot, which is just an easy sitting forehand, just missed yeah. down the line. And yeah. then also, um, also there's an easy back in volley that he missed. Uh, so uh, third third match point, Thompson actually played very well. It was a big body serve from Rafa, and then Thompson played a fantastic point to turn defense into offense. But his first two match points, Rafa definitely should have won. It was three hours and 25 minutes. It was an epic match. Rafa, yeah. I think, will feel like it was an overall positive experience. Only unfortunate part, he's not going to be able to play in Melbourne. He got to play in Brisbane, uh, but he's not going to be able to play Melbourne, play the Australian Open. Hopefully he is healthy enough to play Sunshine Double or at least the clay swing and that we get to see him yeah. back in action as kind of soon as possible. Um, yeah. The other thing kind of going on, we're also going to do a, a bit of an Australian Open preview a little bit later, just some quick touches upon uh, a couple of the other tournaments going on this week. Brisbane was kind of the big one um, on the men's Let's side. Let's talk a second about the, at, in Brisbane, the Rabakana sabalenka oh, yeah, yeah, match yeah, yeah. or yeah, final, yeah, because that. that was, um, Honestly, I I really thought I saw flawless tennis from both of these women for the for the whole week. I mean, it, it was really impressive level, yeah. and I think so. The the final score between Rebecca and Sabalenka was six love six three. I mean, it was a complete demolition job, yeah. Yeah. and I think with Rebecca in a way, almost from the French Open onwards last year, where she got sick and had to pull out. Um, we've just not seen the highest level from her. She's been dealing with illness, dealing with injuries. She said she got sick again in her off season. So she's kind of been through the ringer, but she's certainly reminded us just how good she is when she is fully fit. And I think what's scary is like how easy she made it look. I mean, we know she's a great server, but that motion is just so clean, so fluid, so reliable. Um, just huge power from the baseline, like seems to be making really good decisions on the court in terms of her strategy. And, you know, sometimes we see these types of scorelines when you've got like two big power players like this playing against each other. And sometimes it's one way traffic and there's nothing that you can do. Um, Because Sabalenka really did impress me all week, both with her attitude and her playing. I mean, she hit an impressive number of winners. The unforced error count was, was low enough. She was serving well. And um, I think she she also will have been a little bit shocked or a little bit surprised to see that level from Rabakana this early on in the season. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think I think you know she reminds us why she won Wimbledon and why she's been in the top five the last uh, couple of months and why she's certainly a contender. I mean, she got to the final at the AO last year, and I think she um, has certainly put her name on the ticket as being the the, the person to watch her to uh, contend with in terms of getting to the final this year as well. Yeah. Yeah. It was 6-0, 2-0 she led in that match, which is like eight games for a Bakken and none for Sabalenka. It was just yeah, absolutely nuts. one-sided. Um, 
And yeah, like you said, Sabalenka won a bunch of breadsticks and bagels throughout the throughout the tournament. It wasn't like she wasn't coming through the tournament easy. Um, yeah, Rabakna at her best. Just her footwork is so like kind of elegant and easy. It's Sabalenka yeah. is kind of the fearless kind of play. She'll go for a big, big second serve. She'll just mm-hmm. ruthlessly be going after forehand and backhand. But she's not going for the lines. Like she's just picking a spot on the court and kind of just going for it. Rabakna, mm-hmm. it's it looks so easy and so elegant. She just hits line to lines. It almost like. Yeah. It's all, it literally looks like perfection on a tennis court. Um, you could argue like at the net, like the net game could be better, but even in that match, she had some great volleys coming to the net. Like yeah. everything was kind of working for her. And um, I, I think she's has a, she's a contender for like the highest peak on the, in the women's game. Cause when she's playing like that, I don't know if anybody can touch her. And um yeah. And that includes Iga as well. I'll just go out and I say agree. she has a winning head-to-head against Iga. When when Rabakna is playing her best, uh, just in terms of peak level, I really don't know that there's anybody that consistently stands up to that in terms of their peak their peak game. I agree. Yeah, I mean, when you look yeah. at like the type of game that beats Triantec, you know, think Ostapenko. It's it's the type of person that's going to play all out big power tennis. And I think with Rabakna, she's the one who's able to do that. Um, throughout a match like most consistently like with Sabalenka we'll see some highs and lows some momentum switches in a match um maybe you know some moments where she might you kind of might be like oh that's an odd service game here or there I will say Sabalenka's back end really impressed me this week I mean it it was just huge but uh, yeah as you say I think it's the 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 cleanness of the Rabakina game it's hard to find fault in her technique at all her movement is so good her anticipation and and i think really from a strategic perspective the way that she's playing the points is what's so impressive to me and um yeah i mean she she certainly looks like she's back to her highest level which is just fantastic in terms of setting up the women's game with four big names who have won slams in the last 18 months or so two years really you know, between the four of Shmiontek, Sabalenka, Rabakner, and Goff, who also won a title this week, um, it's it's going to be a great tournament. Yeah. Uh, it sets up for an interesting women's event. Uh, and I guess almost by definition, it does, or I don't know if that's the right way of saying it, but almost um, you don't even have to think about it very much in terms of uh, Iga was by far the player coming in with the most momentum out of out of 2023 winning the WTA finals but she had never won uh, she had never even reached the final of the Australian Open before so yeah. you look at a player like Sviantek and you're like oh well she might win the Australian Open but well, let's see if she can do better mm-hmm. than she has in the rounds before which by definition yeah. is pretty compelling in itself so yeah. um so I, I would say that and also she didn't reach the final last year with Sabalenka Rabakna who played fantastic events this week then you have Coco who won in Auckland which we'll get to in a second but yeah. <laughs> but you have Coco in Auckland who just won the U.S. Open the very last major played so I agree exactly. it's gonna be great um and uh yeah wh- one thing I would say about Rabakna is that uh after Rome after she kind of whipped you out of Roland yeah. Paris, she kind of mm-hmm. her level dropped for the last like it seven did. months yeah but for the last five months for the first five months of 2023 her level she was, was extraordinary and yeah. people thought that she was a big contender for the world number one ranking even because the yeah. way she was playing because mm-hmm. she had got it done on Wimbledon grass courts the year prior she got it done on the slow Rome clay she was extremely consistent on hard courts and a lot of the last yeah. kind of part of the season was hard courts and uh then she kind of slowed down but she just she's very new to the top of the tour she only reached the top 10 at the start of last year i think her game really fits well in australia she was actually my yeah. pick for for the australian open 
and we can look at our our power rankings for Australian Open in a second as well. But mm-hmm. she was kind of my pick for the Australian Open um, before the year started, uh, to, uh, and she had a great week. But I just think the conditions suit her well. She's going to come in with less yeah. pressure than Sabalenka yeah. or Sviantec, in my opinion. And Sabalenka yeah. is going to have a lot of pressure on her. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's just it's just really good to see Rabakne. And what, one or, one last thing I'd say about Rabakne, she's just like, when, I think you made a good point. When she's zoned in and has a really good performance, she doesn't let her foot off the gas. Like Mm-mm. when she has her peak performance, she's just zoned in. She's a quiet killer and she will, it doesn't matter who's on the other side of the net. She is as determined as it gets and she just puts her head down and just strategically, technically, just plays pretty much flawless. So it's, yeah. she's a great addition to the tour. She belongs in that big three moniker, in my opinion. I agree. Yeah, well said. Um, and then uh, and then going on to Auckland uh, and the uh, the Auckland WTA event, also the Hong Kong ATP event, before we'll talk about the Australian Open in a bit as well. In Auckland, it was Goff beating Spitalina in the final 6-7, 6-3, 6-3. The fourth, uh, the fourth woman to win back-to-back titles in Auckland. It is her seventh title. She only dropped one set to Svetlina in the final. Both of these players are such good players in finals that this was so yeah. compelling to watch because you like go yeah. in and you know that Alina Svetlina is 17-3 and three in finals, which is currently one of the most ridiculous finals records on the WTA tour, uh, which is part of the reason Svetlina has been able to climb up the ranks so much. Uh, even if she hasn't won a major, she's won a lot of other titles. And uh, Coco, who's also, I believe, now seven and one, eight and one in ti- in finals. Uh, anyway, really, really good. What'd you think of that match? Really guy? enjoyed it. A great matchup. You know, I think Switzerlina continues to impress. I think we expect a high level from her now. I mean, she was a former number three in the world, and she's she's playing top ten level in my opinion. I love how her game has evolved and changed since she's come back as a mother playing much more aggressive tennis. I mean, I, I saw a couple stats with ridiculous number of winners to unforced error ratios in the prior rounds, you know, is finding a way to win matches when she's feeling leggy, when she's feeling sore. Uh, that semifinal, she was dealing with, you know, a, a bad back in the first set and um, still kind of, you know, found a way to keep it competitive and um, figure out a, a different game plan to help her win. And she's just adjusting really well. And, you know, Coco, I think, um, it was either going to be a shift of, okay, I've won the US Open, now I feel a lot of pressure and oh my God, oh my God, and kind of maybe potentially seeing a dip in form before we see her back. Or it was going to be, I am a US Open champion. I'm a Grand Slam champion. I, you know, I'm great on hard courts. I'm a great athlete and I'm, I fully invest and believe in myself now. I'm going to take this, you know, full confidence, full stride. And I think she, she is that, the latter of the two in terms of what happens when you win a Grand Slam title at that age. And I fully expect her to have a really strong season, whether that includes another slam or not, I don't know. But I think she is just such a good athlete and is, you know, made some adjustments and improvements that that she needed to make in order to win the slam. I think Brad Gilbert is just a fantastic coach for her and is really going to be key to kind of unlocking these consistent performances and results in finals and it was you know it was a competitive match I mean you know tie break lost lost that first set tie break when she was in positions early on in that set to to go ahead and take it 
And I mean, she's so composed mentally too, you know, sort of like didn't freak out, went back to the, the drawing board, went back to work and, and got the job done. And, um, you know, it, extremely professional performance from somebody her age and is, is not playing like somebody who, you know, has a lot of pressure on their shoulders. And um, I, I honestly, you know, feel really good about her upcoming season. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I don't think pressure uh, is going to be a big problem for Coco because I feel like she's dealt with this kind of pressure on her since she came to the tour mm -hmm. and was around 15 years old, just sure. being Venus. Yeah. And some people <laughs> place this kind of next Serena or next Venus moniker on her. And um, is this next kind of great like American star uh, to kind of take up the mantle on the WTA side. And I just don't, I think she's used to the pressure. And I think that yeah. I agree that Brad Cobra is fantastic. He understands tennis in a very deep way, especially from a coaching standpoint. He's coached a lot yeah. of players in a very impressive way. I, I put him with a guy like Paul Anico and Darren Cahill, just yeah. players who are really, really solid coaches that have had a lot of success on the coaching side. And yeah. um, I think it was, it was never about the mentality or about the physicality. I think now that uh, she's had those two in the bags pretty much since she came on tour, but now she needed the technicality aspect, especially mm -hmm. on the uh, forehand and that forehand yeah. is sitting a lot bigger. I agree with everything you said about the final. Um, and I'm glad to see Coco having success right away. Cause that definitely wasn't a, uh, wasn't a must at all. Uh, but you did mention uh, just real quick before we uh, kind of move on, you did mention uh, kind of really good winners to unforced errors ratio. And uh, before we move on completely from Brisbane, I want to mention Naomi Osaka came back, which I don't think yeah. we touched upon. And I don't know if you saw, but Osaka hit 40 winners and 12 unforced errors against Pliskova. And she still lost that match. That was an absurd match. Every once in a while, Pliskova comes out from whatever hole she's in and, and reminds us that she was a former world number one. I mean, that yeah. that woman can play crazy tennis and it's annoying because it's like, why, why do you choose this match to show up? Yeah. But um, that was final. great. Again, like another great representation of women's tennis and um, Naomi Osaka put on you know, two two really fantastic performances in her comeback matches. I mean, I don't think yeah. she should be disappointed with that loss to Pliskova because Pliskova just played out of her mind. I mean, she served incredibly well, and there wasn't really much Osaka could have done. Um, but she she certainly, to me, looks like she um, is is going to be a headache for anybody that has her on her side of the draw. I mean, her natural talent, her hand skills, her serve. Um, if she wants to be up there and be a contender, it, it's really on her terms, in my opinion, um, yeah. because she can she can do whatever she wants. <laughs> That's very fair. And she's very streaky as well. Every time she's reached yeah. a major quarterfinal, uh, she's gone all the way at that major now. She's yeah. four and zero in majors where she's reached the quarterfinal. Absolutely absurd match. The ball striking, I, I mean, Osaka is one of the better ball strikers on the tour. Um, yeah. Just a couple a couple stats uh, as we're on that match. Pliskova's first serve, Osaka only won 10 points of 68. On Osaka's serve, Pliskova won 12 of 64, which is just outrageous. Great stuff. numbers. <laughs> yeah. At one point in the match, I just remember the stat as it came on TV as I was watching. It was 88% uh, first serve points won for Osaka, 82 for Pliskova, which is just numbers you never see in your life. Dream. Yeah, 47 winners to Pliskova, 24 unforced errors. Uh, the stats are just ridiculous. Uh, and then also Pliskova, uh, or sorry, was, yeah, Pliskova had a great match against Ostapenko in the next round yeah. as well. And uh, then Ostapenko had a great match against Ozarenko. There's a lot of really high-level matches in that event. Uh, yeah, see and Ostapenko was uh, a oh, fourth yeah. finalist at the Australian Open last year. And she did remember she had a good run at the US Open last year. I mean, I think 
you know, Ostapenko, some tennis fans might not remember her winning a Grand Slam um, at Roland Garros back in, was it like 2016, I want to say, somewhere around there, 2017. Um, you know, and, and she was very young when she won it, and she's obviously had up and down years and up and down performances. But again, she's another one of those players, like, when she's on, you don't want her in your half of the yeah. draw, especially on hard courts. And um, she's somehow, over the last year or so, been finding ways to be more consistent in back-to-back matches. And we've been talking about her as not, you know, a, a favorite per se, but as somebody who's in that, you know, outside group of contenders who watch out for, and at least as someone who's capable of taking out a top seed at a tournament if she if she doesn't even go on to win it but she's certainly capable of taking somebody big out of a tournament yeah i would be downright shocked if we don't see a big upset from uh from ostapenko it's just the thing of even when she won that Roland Garros 2017 i think she only won one title throughout the whole year season yeah. so i don't know if she's going to be able to rise up her ranking to say the top five especially with the depth yeah. and kind of the talent and the great mentalities yeah. on the woman's side at the moment but what i will say is I wouldn't be that shocked if she has another Roland Garros 2017 moment in the next like few years, or at least, or at least gets to a final or a semifinal, has a big run because she is a player who, when she's streaky, she we were just talking about peak level. She mm-hmm. has a high peak level, and yeah. uh, it's the kind of drama and unpredictability that I tend to really enjoy in sports. I love watching her. Yeah, yeah, I love watching Pinko. Uh, I'm not gonna lie. Um, yeah, she can be anybody on her day. So triple bounce. Um, Triple bounce. Yeah, you know she she just she's funny. She's fun to watch. But let's wrap up this. Uh, yeah. This what happened so far with Hong Kong? Rublev uh, gets his fifteenth career title against Rusevori. Yeah. And to be honest with you, I was thinking about it uh, yesterday. Fifteen titles is quite a lot in terms of active yeah. players at the moment. That that is big. Um and. You know, we talked about him a lot towards the end of last season in terms of the 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 game has gotten so much better. He's improved on so many things in 2023. And it's just always been a question mark of like, can you then beat the top guys when you're getting towards the end of a tournament? You know, and this is a Hong Kong 250. I don't think that this is like uh, indicative of any changes on that front. Um, but it certainly puts him in a positive mindset, I hope, going into the Australian Open. And, um, you know, I, I, this is going to be a year where we start to see, can he adjust in any way um, to, to make himself competitive once he's getting into, you know, the round of 16 and beyond in these majors. And um, that's that's where we're going to have to start seeing him, you know, insert himself into the conversation or not. And, um, you know, he's a fan favorite. He's somebody that... Uh, I would say most people enjoy watching and enjoy enjoy being a part of these these tournaments. So I'm glad he got a first season win, and I'm impressed by his uh, title hole. It's it's yeah. a sizable one. <laughs> yeah, 15 career title. It's the uh, I saw since the uh, pandemic. It's the uh, he's tied for the second most on tour with I believe uh, with Medvedev for the most wow. titles won since 2020, but 15 uh, only behind Djokovic. So. Yeah, quite a lot. <laughs> fifteen is fifteen is crazy. He's won a title every single year since twenty seventeen. So, um, so yeah, there you go. Yeah, uh, yeah, and he's a fan favorite. Very genuine guy. Could see him having success. I'm very curious by what his twenty twenty four looks like. To be honest, um, yeah. and then uh, also in the tournament, uh, another comeback. 
uh, player, Marine Chilich, came back, but he's going to want to forget about it quickly because he was up <laughs> nine match points miraculously against Jan Leonard Struff, and he can't quite close it, which is going to be an absolute heartbreaker of a comeback. And it was just, uh, it was just a cruel, cruel thing that in a day of comebacks and a week of comebacks, you have Marine Chilich who tried to come back and was up nine match points against a guy as solid as Jan Leonard Struff, and he just couldn't quite close it with endless chances in that match. So it was just kind of a, yeah. kind of a, kind of a cruel moment there. Of a comeback. Match fitness, you know, again, like how, how are you playing matches week in, week out? Yeah. Are you finishing them? You know, it's, it's for some reason, the psychology of tennis, you get most nervous when you have match points. I don't know what happens. This, this game is brutal, but it's also worth, you know, noting that Struff had some injury challenges of his own towards the end of last year. And, um, also didn't have a lot of momentum or, you know, kind of match practice coming into this tournament. And so um, I, I hope he takes some positive and some confidence from this because he was really a great addition in the 2023 season and created a lot of really fun storylines for people. And um, he, he's a fast, fantastic, you know, contributor in the top 50 realm of tennis. And so, um, you know, good, good to see him kind of <laughs> being able to hang in there. But yes, uh, Chilich uh, will be having some nightmares about this one. Yeah, it, yeah. And Chilich, uh, Struff is one of the most mentally solid kind of just, he doesn't yeah. care who he's playing, like players on the tour. And he didn't even get a chance to play on grass or at Wimbledon last year um, yeah. that much, but he got to the final okay. Madrid on clay court. So good to have Struff back. Good to have Chilich back as well. But I hope that that doesn't happen next week for, Ch for Ch Chilich's sake. Um, yeah. But then, uh, okay, uh, let's move on then to our kind of uh, Australian Open power rankings and the Australian Open segment as a whole yeah. uh, for, for the event. Yeah, so, you know, obviously just reminding us our defending champions are Djokovic and Sabalenka. And so we've talked a lot about, you know, who's in form in these kind of warm-up tournaments. We're going to discuss... Um, who's pulled out wild cards, notable unseated names, qualifiers, other information, and then go into our power rankings. Um, well, we'll kind of discuss, you know, who really are our top contenders on both the WTA and ATP side. Um, so it's worth kind of noting, obviously we chatted about Nadal pulling out. We've got some other names on the ATP side and Liam Brody, Nick Curios, the bigger Nick, name. Um, just can't play. It's just can't get back. Yeah. It's a, yeah. uh, He'll be disappointed with that um, for sure. And then Opelka still not healthy. Um, and on the WTA side, former finalist Jennifer Brady is out. Madison Keys is out. Mukova awesome. had a great season last year. Big shame that she is not participating. Kvitova, who's pregnant, so we're not going to see her for the rest of the season. Uh, and Drescu, still not well with a back injury that she picked up towards the later half of last year. Uh, Venus Williams, Lauren Davis, Begu, McNally, and Potipova are all out. Um, so that's left uh, some opportunities for some notable names to sneak their way back in, including Raducanu. Um, a lot of people thought she was going to have to play qualifying. I mean, she was in a situation where she would have had to uh, had um, these players not pulled out. But I think it was uh, thanks to Lauren Davis pulling out yeah, that Raducanu yeah, got yeah. into the tournament. And uh, talking about comebacks briefly, Raducanu played a good level this week. And, you know, for those who didn't know, she had wrist surgery on both wrists. I think ankle surgery on both ankles last year. And, um, you know, it, it was always going to be question marks with her as to what her level was going to be. But I think she showed glimpses of that, especially in her match against Svitolina. And, um, 
you know, I don't think she's a contender or a name that's going to make it deep. But I'm hoping that 2024 is an opportunity for her to reinsert herself at least into the top 50 in the women's conversation. And um, if she can pick up a title here or there, because I, I, I do think she has the game to be competitive um, on the WTA side. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she has a lot of upside when she's playing well. And anybody who can win 10 matches at a Grand Slam tournament when they're 18 years old is something not to just underestimate. Because I, I know she didn't play a top 10 name at that tournament, which is does probably take points away. But she played Zachary. She played Belinda Benchich, who, who had just won, uh, won the Olympics. So I, I still say it's... Yeah, impressive. it doesn't matter. You know, she beat her opponent. And she won that tournament fair and square. And... um. You know, I, and I think you made a good comparison earlier, like with Coco Goff, she wins a slam at, you know, as a teenager, but I think she was on the tour for a lot longer. She's, you know, yeah. seen the ebbs and flows of a WTA season. She's had, you know, an unrealistic pressure put on her from 15 years old. Whereas I think with Radicanu, the year she won the US Open, she just kind of had a breakout at Wimbledon, like had a good run. Like yeah. it was really like, oh, who is this girl? And like, where has she come from? And then all of a sudden, unexpectedly having to deal with all of that pressure, having like just finished school, like just turned right. pro, like all of this stuff happening. Um, she wasn't conditioned to be on a, you know, consistent pro level in the way that Coco Goff has been. So I think it's understandable to see different trajectories in this way, where, you know, you kind of have these breakout moments where somebody clearly has the ability to, to play at such a high level, which she does, but I don't think she had the um, structure, the training, the experience to be able to maintain that realistically. Um, it right. was That was always an unfair pressure to put on her and, um, you know, I'm hoping, I think she said so herself now, it's, you know, been two years since she's won the US Open. She kind of had pretty much most of last year out. And so it's an opportunity for her to start over. And um, I, I really hope she takes advantage of that. Yeah, and it's the physicality as well of like the body adapting as well, because young players struggle with physicality all the time. She was out of so yeah. many retirements. So yeah. hopefully she gets uh, she gets her body right um, and that she can uh, she can play a lot because yeah. she is a good addition to the tour. Yeah. And wild cards, we've got, um, you know, most, I think it's about 65% of wild cards at the Australian Open are awarded to local and homegrown talent. That's not unusual. It's the same for the other slams as well. Um, on the WTA side, it's going to be fun to see the return of Daria Savo. Um, you know, she's she's a great contender, a great personality on the WTA side, and obviously an Australian favorite. So excited to see her back. Caroline Wozniacki gets another wild card. She obviously made her return at the US Open last year, but excited to see her play. She's always yeah, a great addition. We need her back. I want Wozniacki back. I want to no, see her happen. She's not a good run at the US Open. I want to see her. I want to see her do yeah. Um, We've got Elise Cornet who, for those of you who don't know, this is her 66th consecutive Grand Slam, which I think is one of the most absurd stats I have ever heard yeah. in tennis. I mean, how is your body okay? <laughs> I, yeah. Like, what the hell? <laughs> and she she started when I think she was like 18, like she's only like, what, 33, 34? Like, what? Yeah, I, 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 I mean, it's not like she's making the end of these grand slams. So it's a little yeah. different from talking yeah. about someone who's winning them, but right. D six, when you think about how many years that is to be healthy, to play a grand slam, it's yeah. a really ridiculous, really impressive 
statistic and I think it's testament to her as a player in terms of just being so resilient and being such a good ambassador for the sport loving the sport loving getting out there and competing and she had a good a good little run here I think last year or two years ago kind of had a nice little fairy tale moments um in Australia so it's nice to see her get the opportunity on the back end of her career I think she seems to kind of be like she's on her way out um, yeah, she, she did say she's gonna have a farewell season so we'll see yeah. if that kind of comes to exactly. fruition yeah. let's get to your point yep and uh lastly Kaba as well um is back in the mix although she's not in a wild card that's incorrect she's coming back in on a um on a protected ranking uh, so right, yeah. um yeah and then on the atp side yeah, um the, on the atp side uh chinese a teenager shang who was uh, really impressive him. yeah he, he looks really good yeah his forehand is really really good i got a chance to see him in atlanta play and his he just looks fantastic and i really he's fun think, yeah he's fun yeah I, I, I like him as well um and then also a really talented french teenager arthur kazal just a few teenagers getting some wild cards who i think are going to get more in the zeitgeist in terms of people knowing their names uh pretty soon but yeah those are a couple yeah. of notable wild cards everybody else is australian there are some good names there but those were some of the more notable ones from wta and atp sides uh and then notable unseated names as well um you have, uh, we mentioned Radakanu, you have Osaka, uh, Kerber, Tamlanovich, you have Sofia Kennan, you have uh, Pliskova. Um, Sofia Kennan is a player that I have some high hopes for this year. I'm hoping that Kennan mm -hmm. can do something, but it's the it's the kind of thing of she's losing to players that she really shouldn't be losing to, and then she's kind of beating players she shouldn't be beating, but <laughs> I'm glad to, I'm glad that she is. She's, uh, she's having some good upsets, but it's a bit of inconsistency still. So we'll see if she gets back there. She ha did reach, uh, was Australian Open champion 2020. That's Yeah, uh, I exactly. I mean, she's won this tournament. It's, yeah. uh, again, kind of been one of, another one of those WT names that's won a slam over the last five years. It's like completely gone away, unfortunately. Um, you know, injuries, play cards, kind of similar story with Andrescu. Um, but then it's also been like a mentality question mark, like a strange coaching relationship with her dad. And um, yeah, just, just honestly, it didn't look like she has been having fun playing tennis for a while. I think the first time I seen her like look like she was having a good time was in San Diego last year um, when she, she reached the final, I think. So um yeah i mean she's again it's like the game doesn't go so anywhere like it is something with the mentality is off and the approach i mean maybe her, her body isn't the same as it was when she won the title but it would be nice to see her reestablish herself um you know in, the, in, in inside these top rankings and and be a contender again yeah i totally agree uh and we talked about uh caroline pliskova who uh who played amazing this week in Brisbane. So if she yeah. plays like she did against Osaka, she may, might get to the final or win the tournament, but we'll see if she can maintain <laughs> that level. I don't, I don't think she's stringing back-to-back -back performances <laughs> like that, but, um, you know. And then on the HV side, we had uh, we also had Ar Arthur Fies is a yeah. uh, dangerous, unseated name. I mean, this guy is so talented and so yeah. fun to watch. Um, I love watching Fies play. And then also Saf Yulin has been playing really yep. strong tennis. Um, really strong. Yeah. And then Wawrinka and then Dominic team who also practiced together in Melbourne, by the way, uh, two of the, two of the players trying to come back and have a really strong season next yeah. year, but we'll see kind of what happens. Uh, and that's just some notable names who have been at the top of the game on feast Murray. We'll see what Andy can do. Uh, what Murray yeah. can 
and then uh, also Draper, Shevchenko, Raonic is back. Matteo Berrettini is an interesting name. What do you think of Berrettini's chances for next, uh, like for his career this year and for like future years? What do you think is kind of, what do you imagine mm-hmm. he could do? Like his potential is at the moment. Do you think he's going to stay towards mm-hmm. top of the game? I'm on a best guess? It's very unpredictable at the moment. Yeah, it's so hard to know because obviously he really couldn't do much last year physically. I mean, he made a he made a decent go of it at Wimbledon. I mean, I think that's a surface that's always going to be favorable to him. I think the biggest issue with Berrettini is, you know, that he he doesn't have a backhand. He he can only really hit a slice yeah. backhand. And I think the best returners and the best movers in the world can exploit that if he's not, you know, playing a 100% level serving game, which obviously he can serve people off the court and he's got a ridiculous um, forehand. But I sort of worry with players like this who have this type of profile, who've now picked up a couple of these types of injuries, then got injured again at the US Open. It's almost like sometimes these injuries can become a little bit mental um, and happen because you are feeling a little nervous, feeling a little tentative. You haven't kind of built that, you know, match preparation and momentum. And you're like constantly just like trying to get back and trying to get, you know, um, reassert yourself and and the pressure starts to build and the question marks start to rise. And um, I think it's kind of, it's quite hard for me to predictably answer that question. I, I, I think he's the type of player that if he can be healthy for a season, I would certainly expect him to be inside the top 20, if not the top 15. But given the depth of the ATP field right now and kind of what other players with similar profiles are showing, like a her catch, for example, in terms of a big serve, there's more to their game than what Berrettini has um, showed me in the past, I think. And so, you know, he's a name that I just have question marks over in terms of his ability to get back to the level that he was, that he once was, or even exceed it. Um, Right. Yeah. But another name on that list that I think is exciting that I'm I'm really keen to watch is Draper. Uh, he's a youngster, um, you know, from the UK that I, I've kind of had an eye on the last 18 months. And um, again, physical questions, you know, can, can he stay fit for a season has been the question mark with him. But in terms of talent and ability, I mean, he's so much fun to watch. He's got the weapons, big serve, big forehand, moves really well. Um, play, played a good first round match in Adelaide already this week. And um, yeah, again, he's like, he's that type of dark horse on a hard court that I wouldn't want to see on my half of the draw. And he's an exciting youngster along with, you know, Feast, Shelton and those guys who have, who have big power games. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree. I think, I think Jack, if he's healthy, I think he's a top 30, top 20 guy. He could even climb up higher. He's very talented, big mm-hmm. forehand, big game. Mm-hmm. Very skilled. So um, I think uh, once he gets more experience and kind of improves on the mental side of the tour, kind of like a guy like Sebastian Corda, as long as they're healthy, mm-hmm. they should be climbing up a bit higher. So that's kind of what I would, I would say about Jack, uh, Jack as well. Um, yeah. And then, uh, and then also just to touch upon the qualifying uh, before we kind of get into like kind of overall thoughts and kind of power rankings. Uh, we had Diego Schwartzman. Uh, Crazy to qualifying. think he's all the way down there. No. Yeah. This yeah. guy, this is a guy who, has a mentality that is top 10. This is a guy who has a talent that might be top five, but he just can't figure it out at the moment. He's been yeah, on the tour for a long time. So it's a shame that he's playing qualifying, but I think everyone's ruining you on Diego. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go, Diego. Goffin is also there. Dave Goffin, uh, Cressy. Yep. Um, 
uh, Hugh Herbert, a French guy who has been as high as top 40 in the world. Um, some other players in there that I would mention as notable qualifiers, Alex Molchan is a talented guy. Um, also Lloyd Harris, Avashka, yeah, Benoit Perrin there. Uh, and then also a big name of Medjidovic, who, uh, who won the next-gen finals, and he's playing qualifying. We'll see how he can do kind of over there. And um, and then WTA. Oh, and don't forget Michael Moe. Michael Moe oh, was a lucky loser in last year's Australian Open, and I think he made it to the fourth round. Is that right? Third yeah, round, fourth, third, fourth round. Yeah, he, he had a really good run here at the Australian Open last year. He sort of, everyone was like, who the hell is this? Um, so he, he came out of nowhere. And, I, and yeah. both on the WTA and the ATP side, we've got last year's junior champion um, playing. And that's, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Blocks? Blocks? Blocks, so, yeah. Uh, I'm going to go with that. And it's B-L-O-C-K-X, uh, B -L -L <laughs> if that helps. <laughs> very yeah. impo impossible name. Yeah. And Corneva on the women's side. Um, other yeah. names for the WTA, uh, Fruta Vittora, again, a, a youngster, 16 years old. And it's it's great to see, you know, junior champs now coming in and, and having their try at, at the pro level. Um, I put the name Yulia Niemeyer in the mix because some of you might not remember, but she made the uh, quarters or the semis at, of Wimbledon in 2022. Um, yeah. She, you know, uh, I don't know what, has happened to her, she's completely fallen off. But um, again, similar name, Teichman hasn't had quite the same, you know, deep run as uh, Niemeyer, but was a player that was solid, you know, top 40, top 30, and was in Grand Slam main draws and had a very poor season last year. So he's looking to turn that around. And then uh, other names you might recognize are Yastremska, Harriet Dark, uh, Volinets, the American, who uh, had a good go of things last year in Down Under and Aranga, who had a good run in Guadalajara at last year's Masters tournament. So could be yeah. could be some fun qualifying matches in there. And of course, I think what's always fun to remind people with qualifying is like, these are the folks who have the most on the line. And, you know, it, it, it's a matter for them of, you know, making a significant paycheck at the start of the year and getting some ranking points that might help them get some sponsors or change the trajectory of their season and putting them, you know, possibly in a tough situation where where they're you know starting the year on a bad front so i think um qualifying if you can watch it or you can go is is always interesting to keep an eye on and of course it's also a good opportunity to start to become familiar with some new talent some younger talent that's given that given a yeah. go as well only ten dollars to go in person and uh awesome. you can watch for free if you can get some websites almost impossible <laughs> to find places to watch tennis nowadays but if you can manage to do that good job uh <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, anyway, uh, a lot of exciting names there, and uh, I'm I'm excited for this event. Um, and then, do you yeah. want to go into kind of our power rankings for the Australian Open? Wrap it up with that. Yes. Uh, one quick note for folks: yeah. this um, this Australian Open will begin on a Sunday. That's unusual. Usually, slams begin on a Monday. So the Australian Open, I think, has you know tried to take on board some feedback in terms of challenges with late night finishes a lot of conversation came up around that last year with Andy Murray finishing at 4 a.m in back-to-back -back matches I mean um you know and it's not just the Australian Open that has this issue it's it's all a slam so they they moved it to a Sunday both to give kind of you know like families and kids another opportunity to come on a weekend um and and have some fun and second to try to see if it might combat some of these scheduling headaches well we'll see but um, yeah, if you're if you're planning to watch, don't forget that it starts a day earlier than it has in the past. And if you're 
paying attention to things, the draw will come out this Thursday. So um, that'll that'll give us some good insights and previews as to what early round matches you should be looking out for. And then for the power ranking segment of the podcast, the power rankings for anybody unfamiliar, these are kind of the players that we expect to do the best in the next kind of tournaments to come, who the players we feel like are doing the best at the moment. And uh, this is kind of like our power rankings for the Australian Open and which players we expect to uh, do the best at the Australian Open. So uh, we actually have the same number one, which is, uh, I, I suppose, makes a bit of sense with Rabakna's crazy week this year, week, and also just Djokovic, how crazy he plays in Australia. But uh, yeah, I have Djokovic and I have Rabakna, and we kind of talked a little bit about Rabakna earlier. She just is looking so good at the moment. And then kind of going down my kind of ATP list, I've got, Yannick in there. I've got Daniil. I've got Alcaraz, kind of the best four players at the moment. Center ended the year really well last year. He hasn't played a lead-up event, but he's doing really well. And then number five, I have Grigor Dimitrov, who, like I said, Australian Open has been his best event historically. This is a guy who's playing amazing. He's actually beating top guys at the moment. So I, I like how Dimitrov's playing. His ser- he's serving amazing. He's playing aggressive. I think his game, he's a dark horse at the Australian Open. I just hope that mentally he performs, but he's been feeling confident and looking just calm out there. So I hope he can do that. And he's just he's just so fun to watch. He's going to be playing, by the way, Dimitrov's going to be playing his 52nd consecutive Grand Slam tournament, which is a record, active record on the men's side. So uh, watch out, Grigor. He's only, I believe, 33, 32. So he's got more time to go. Uh, mm-hmm. And then for number six, I have Zverev, who I see you have a lot higher on your list, Eliza, but... We'll get to that. And then uh, Rublev, then Herkatz, then Runa. Then Tsitsipas. Uh, nothing super crazy on my list. I was debating putting Tsitsipas higher, but he hasn't really shown me that much recently. Also some injury concern, but he got to the Australian Open final last year. He's been consistent at this event. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my ATP side if you want to go over your kind of uh, your kind of picks as well. Yeah, so for me, Zverev takes that number two spot. Um, because I'm a little concerned by the fact that we haven't seen Medvedev, Senna, or Alcaraz play any warm-up tournaments ahead of the Australian Open, and I feel like Australia is the one place where you probably do want to play a warm-up tournament because of the conditions and getting your body used to the heat, the humidity, um, and the way the court plays. And... Obviously, they all had good finishes to the season. They all finished the season pretty late as well. So, you know, I understand it from a scheduling decision. I just always feel a little bit nervous, especially with Sinner and Alcaraz. You know, they're young. They're not as experienced. Um, You know, coming into a Grand Slam, having literally not played a match in a couple of weeks. I I have question marks over it. I'm not going to lie. I I, I just think that's a bit tough. Um, So, you know, it's where I'm having a good United Cup. Um, getting used to the conditions, been down under for a little while. Um, And he's playing some really good tennis and he looks physically really fit. Um, And he's serving, you know, he showed us last year that the kind of serving yips is is a question mark we can put to one side, really. Um, His sort of willingness to just like mentally be tough. I, I think he's tougher in that way, in that department than he's been before. And I just think he's showing signs of somebody that's really knocking on the door. And um, it, I, I don't know, something tells me that he might have some, he might have something more in the locker than the folks who haven't had the, the kind of warm up tournaments. That, that's why I've pushed him up ahead of those, those guys for now. Um, 
Rublev and Dimitrov to me are, are, are kind of very similar levels. I, I don't think there's that much between them in terms of you know damage that they can cause in terms of potential. I fancy both of them, um, you know, to to have a good run here and um, have a positive start to the season. I think again, similar feelings about Runa and her catch. I don't think there's that much between them. I think Runa has showed us that he's back from whatever slump that he was in. And I think it's also true that with back injuries in tennis, I always add three months on from what you know somebody would normally say in terms of recovery time. So I just think the back is such a difficult um injury to pick up and to deal with and to kind of play through. And that's why to me, I have a lot of question marks over Tsitsipas. He did pick up quite a nasty uh back injury with um in the ATP finals I mean he was he suffering from such a bad spasm he couldn't walk for a week and, ha and having been someone that deals with that themselves um it's uh it takes a while to shake off a spasm like that even if there's structurally not something wrong your muscles will start firing in a different way um that kinetic chain looks different than it was before and kind of getting back to you know peak match level and peak fitness can can be challenging. He's obviously had good runs at Australia before, made made two finals or at least one final um, in Australia. And so certainly shouldn't be a name that um, we discount. That to me is why I put yeah. Tsitsipas in here over someone like Taylor Fritz, who's, you know, yeah. in the top 10 in the line rankings. I just don't think um, he, you know, he's shown the same level of promise in slam performances as Tsitsipas has even though it might have been streaky. So we, you know, we have all of the same names here in the mix, just slightly different thinking in terms of, you know, yeah. how they're coming into it. But yeah, um, similar thinking yeah. about Steph though. I, uh, I did think that this is a guy who's just his form and his health is kind of the questions for me rather than, mm -hmm. uh, rather than his kind of uh, his past success of the results. Also, I don't know if it's a tennis 360 thing, but I, I also have back issues. I was in months with physical therapy <laughs> on my back. So yeah. I, I relate to that and it sucks. Yeah. And it's, it takes a long time. Um, yeah. uh, but, uh, but yeah, it sets boss, the back thing, that's a concern. It and is, then also, yeah. uh, Sasha. So Sasha is interesting to me. We have different placements, which I like. I like it when there's a bit of a thing and we get, cause it, it makes something interesting, right? If we're all choosing yeah. the same things. Nothing's that interesting. It's like people want to stray away from tennis debate and discussion, but it's good when people have differing opinions, as long as they're not eating each other alive, uh, <laughs> eating each other alive about it, which can be entertaining as well. But uh, it's good to have tennis discussion. Um, Sasha, for me, has just underperformed at Australian Open in the past for me. He's only reached two quarterfinals there. He's only reached one semifinal. He hasn't been to a final there. And there are multiple times I feel like he should have. He just has kind of underperformed, which part of yeah. the reason I put him. Also, he lost to Demonor this week. He got match points down against Hubie. He cut it really close. So I still mm -hmm. have my questions about Sasha uh mm -hmm. going into this year also i'm not entirely convinced that he's at the consistency playing match in match out that he was quite before the injuries real close i'm just not sure the consistency is quite there because he will play a match every now and again that feels a little bit more off but i do agree that physically since the injury he's looking as good as ever he's looking really yeah. fit he did mm -hmm. have a united cup that'll give him a lot of confidence for sure it would give anybody a lot of confidence so for me i put sasha a little bit lower but i do have him at number six um and mm -hmm. uh i think he deserves a place in the united cup power rankings in terms of where what he'll do in uh at the australian open um and then yeah. uh yeah i think our placements are really similar um honestly 
Uh, I have Dimitrov a little bit above Rublev, I will say, just because I feel like Rublev has a much tougher time beating top, top guys, whereas Dimitrov has beaten, I think, four or five top 10 guys in the last couple months. So okay. that is one reason I put Dimitrov above. But anyway, very similar stuff. And then we can kind of wrap yeah. it up with the WTA power rankings. Hang on, uh, before, we, before we get on to WTA, oh, sure, I think sure. there are a couple names that I want to mention that um, had deep runs in Australia last year that includes... Tommy Paul, Ben Shelton, and Seb Quarter, three Americans. Um, obviously, Shelton had a fantastic run at the US Open, getting to the semifinal. I mean, Tommy Paul still had a strong season last year, was one of the best hardcore players of the year. And Seb Quarter, I mean, in Adelaide last year, was was very close to beating Djokovic and, um, you know, really impressed at the Australian Open and since picked up injuries and kind of not been in the mix. I think of those three names... Tommy Paul and Ben Shelton would be names to, um, you know, not be not be surprised if they are in conversation in the back half of the tournament, but also wouldn't be surprised if somebody like Ben, you know, can't can't back it up, um, given you know he's he's a rookie, he's yeah. uh, in his second full year on tour, um, and he has a lot of points to defend. But again, those those two players are well inside the top fifteen, and they both have a lot of points to defend, so that could. Um, you know, make things interesting post Australian Open, how things are going to look in the rankings. Yeah. I just wanted to mention. Yeah, I think those are good three mentions. And I would say Corda, in my opinion, out of the three players is the most complete of the three at the moment. So even though he's lacking form, he has yeah. one of the highest peaks. So if he just goes on a streaky event out of nowhere, he, we could find him in the back half of the tournament as well. Yeah. So I, I like yeah. those mentions. And uh, Corda yeah. was playing really well in Australia last year straight set in Medvedev, which is one of the strangest things that happened yeah. last year, if you're looking at the context of the year as a whole, yeah. uh, because Medvedev barely lost matches like that throughout 2023. Uh, yeah. But yeah, and then uh, on the WTA side, I have Rabakna, then I have Sriantek, who is playing amazing. Uh, I think that's the first time she has ever won her first four matches in a season, ended the season amazingly with the WTA finals, Beijing. She's on a 16-match win streak. In fact, uh the only reason I have Rabakna is that she beat Viontek last year, 6-4, 6-4. Uh, she played as amazing as she did this year, and I really liked her in Australia. And then I have Sabalinka, who uh, I just think is going to come in with a lot of pressure on her shoulders. She's never had to defend a major before, and Rabakna and Viontek are just so tough at the moment. And Coco, very similar thing. I am actually very high on Coco going into this event. I'll be shocked if she doesn't make the quarterfinals or the semifinals. But it's just the thing of, the three names above her are just so good and so good in Australia as well that I just I I I want to put her higher. I just couldn't really find the way in for her into the, mm -hmm. those top three. Uh, and then I have JPEG, uh, Jessica Pagula, and then I have Maria Sakari, who I was actually looking really good this week at United Cup, which I was very pleased about. Greece almost miraculously, even though Tsitsipas didn't play every match, uh, won their group. So <laughs> shout out to Maria Sakari for holding Greece down. Then I have Azarenka, who performed very, very well this week. Um, like I said, a great win over Ostapenko. Uh, and then Svitolina, Ostapenko, and and Zhang. And, Zheng, and uh, yeah, those uh, those are some names that I put in there. Uh, Svitolina, Ostapenko, and Zhang are just like names that aren't in the top 10, but they were performing really well this week. And then, uh, yeah, the top seven are players that have been pretty consistent towards the top, and I don't see why they shouldn't be the top names. But yeah, you can kind of go over uh, what do you have in the top ten for your side. 
Yeah, I mean, again, similar. very similar names. I think uh, the only places we're differing is I don't have Azarenka in my list. I mean, she's a former two-time champion at the Australian Open and yeah, uh, such a good player. I love her. I would love for her to have a run. Uh, I think she hasn't won a title since 2016. So it's been a while, yeah. and I just don't think it's going to come here. Yeah, the Sabalinka-Sviantec um, switch as well. I noticed that. Yes, so... It's tough. Obviously, I, I never want to count out Sviantec. Um, uh, she's just such a fantastic player. I think um, the reason why I give a slight edge to Sabalenka is I think the conditions here are perfectly suited to her game. Um, hard courts, you know, I think are her best surface, best opportunity. Um, and I do think Sabalenka performs well when she has her back up against the wall. Like that's something that really improved uh, for her last year and, you know, had moments in that semi-final in the US Open where she lost the first set six love and managed to come back and win. Like she's showed us moments where she's able to rally despite having a bad day or having a bad start. And I think she's just gonna, she's got this really tough, dogged mentality. I don't think she's gonna go away. Um, could she could she turn up and all of a sudden play a really bad match? Sure. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think she's steadied that part of her game. And um, I think she's going to rise to this opportunity. She made a semifinal or better with every Grand Slam last year. Um, you know, Sriantec can't say that. And I I favor her to to do well. So that's why I swapped them. Um, and I agree with you. I think it's it's hard to put Goff higher than four, despite the fact that she's the reigning Open champion. Um, again, like, I think it's one of those those kind of matchups where if Rabakina and Sabalenka are playing their absolute best tennis, they should beat Coco Goff on a, on a fast play and hard court. Um, but, you know, Goff is such a good mover, such a good athlete. If they're even off their game by, you know, a couple percentage points, she puts herself in contention. And it's really rare that you see top players playing at, you know, lights out 100% um, at every match. So she's certainly a contender. I really don't think there's much that separates this top four, um, which, you know, for the first time going into a slam on the WTA side that we can really kind of be sure about who who those big names are going to be and who we expect to to get deep into the tournament i agree with you i think jessica pagula is kind of just outside of that i mean the, the reason why she sits there is because she's not um you know really gotten past around to 16 in the grand slam so hopefully this year is the year that she gets over the line um i you know sakari had a had some great performances for team greece had a better end to her season last year so um, I had Svetlina over her because obviously she made the final in um, Auckland and I, I think she played some really impressive tennis and is showing levels again of a top 10 player. Similar with Ostapenko, um, you know, again, strong performances in Brisbane and made the quarterfinals here last year and certainly has the game to challenge anybody had a good season last year. Uh, Zhang makes it inside my top 10 because I think, um, you know, she's she's got all the makings of a player who can make it big time in the tennis world. She's working with Coco Goff's former coach now that she lost um, Wim Fissett to Naomi Osaka. Um, speaking of which, I put her in my top 10 um, and I gave her the nod because she just looked so good uh, coming back already. And she's a former champion here, two-time champion here. And um, her racket head speed, her serve, 
can just really cause anybody problems and whoever's quarter of the draw she ends up on is, is going to be annoyed um so I, I don't know i have a i have a sneaky feeling that she could impress at this tournament so that's why i gave her the nod yeah I'd love to see it, to be honest, for for Osaka. And she is a two-time champion here, which always means something. Uh, yeah. It was just slightly more Azarenka to me, who got to the semifinals yeah. last year and also had a good kind of performance over against Elena Rabakna in the first set tiebreaker. But um, Osaka, Osaka is interesting because I, to me, my, I reckon she might just need a little bit more time. But I absolutely consider that she's going to I would be surprised if she doesn't reach another major final in her career and probably win another one or maybe multiple. Uh, we have to wait yeah. to see how her career trajectory goes, but I don't see why she can't get back to the top and be extremely successful. I just think she might need more time. And part of the reason is even when she was playing about a year and a half, uh, a year, a year and a half, two years ago, she was still having some issues. And part of the issue is the mental game, and we're still yet mm -hmm. to see how that kind of goes because yeah. uh, even in her first few matches back, she wasn't playing the the big points great. She, I think she converted maybe two of 11 break points against Pliskova, I remember as a stat. Um, so she just, the big points are still aren't great for her in the mental side. It reminds me a bit of Raducanu as well because they have everything else going for her. Their upside and talent is so big. Their ball striking is so huge. But I just think that the mental side is going to be the really big thing to gauge with both of them. And if they can get it together, then uh, watch out because they're two major champions yeah. that are going to be big to watch out for. And uh, Osaka, especially because she is a four-time major champion and she just plays with such a top, a top tier. Um, but yeah, we have a very interesting, uh, similar one. I do think the women's uh, tournament is going to be especially interesting. Going into Australia, you just feel like Djokovic is the big question mark on the men's side because he is just an unstoppable force. It feels like at this event, we'll see how the other guys challenge him. On the woman's side, it's open game, so yeah, we'll we'll see who's who's able yeah. to get it. We both kind of like into Rabakna at the top, partially because for Brisbane performances, but it's pretty open, I think. Yeah, no, it's um, I I think it's a reason why why we love the WTA, and it's it's great to be talking about it in the sense of. There are four names here that really could win it because they're deserving of, of that accolade. Like, their performances have been so good. I think in the past, there's been, like, one or two names are like, hey, this person should win it, and then it's open season as to who might have a good week. And, of course, it's still, you know, you could have random names popping up. We've got comebacks of major champions, and you have stories like Von Drusova and people like that who randomly turn up. Um, you know, interestingly, neither of us have Jabor in our list, who's, you know, two, yeah. the three-time major finalist and um, question marks over her fitness at the moment. But, you know, I, I think it's been a long time since we've been able to say, like, there are there are four names in here who are all recent Grand Slam champions who are top four in the rankings themselves, like, who have all shown good performances at the start of this year. Like, all of them look good, healthy, fit, strong, ready to go. Um, and it's it's been a while since we've had that, so I'm super stoked. Um, it's a great opportunity for the WTA to, um, yeah, show their stuff, and um, I'm I'm really excited. I think it's going to be a fantastic start to the year. Australian yeah. Open's going to dish up some interesting things, and you know, the men's side, Djokovic is going for title number eleven. It's an absurd number. It's the same storyline as last year. Is he is he fully healthy? And then, you know, we have the same conversations of, well, yeah, you know, you just don't count him out. Uh, you don't bet against this guy. He's got a 96% win rate at the Australian Open. I mean, it's absurd. 
And uh, if you're intelligent and you bet on anything, then you wouldn't bet against him. But yeah. secretly, I'm sure there are a number of us who think, oh, gosh, could we please have somebody else? Um, yeah. Unless yeah. you're a huge Novak fan. So, um, you know, let's let's see how it goes. But he's certainly going to win another slam this year. If it's not this one, mate, I, I am yeah. pretty sure it will be this one. So let's see how it goes. Yeah. I fully agree. All right. That's going to be it from Tense 360 podcast uh, this week. Uh, I've been Anthony Hirsch. I'm Eliza Westgate. And I appreciate you guys checking out the podcast. Don't forget to like the video if you enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe to Quality Shot Tennis like always. And I'll see you guys at the next one. Bye.